working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hello, everybody. This is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today is my guest, drummer Jack White. Jack is best known for his work worldwide with singer-songwriter Rick Springfield. In the 40-plus years that Jack's been playing drums, he's worked with many other artists, including Mitch Ryder, Ike and Tina Turner, Sam the Sham, Rare Earth, The Knack, Steppenwolf, and Roger Miller, just to name a few. Jack's other creative pursuits include acting and announcing for iHeartRadio. As always, you can go to WorkingDrummer.net where you can find out more information about this and other episodes of the podcast that we've done. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. If you would, please go there and rate and review our podcast. It really helps us out a ton. This episode of Working Drummer Podcast is sponsored by OnlineDrummer.com. OnlineDrummer.com provides drummers of all ages and skill levels with the best educational resources, including videos, sheet music, ebooks, articles, Skype lessons, and more. OnlineDrummer.com puts all these tools at your fingertips to help you improve your playing. Working Drummer podcast listeners can get a free download of the sheet music of your choice by visiting OnlineDrummer.com and entering the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER. No dots, no spaces. Again, go to OnlineDrummer.com and enter the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER. For one free download of the sheet music of your choice, get practice tips, build your chops, work out new styles, or learn your favorite song today at OnlineDrummer.com. So let's get to it. Here is Jack White. First of all, shout out to David Black for introducing us. Yeah, uh, what a he, sweet guy. Yeah, super awesome. Well, I, uh, I huge props to him. Paid for, a tribute to me when he met me that blew me away, and I never ceases to amaze me. That's I, awesome. I'm lucky that that I've gotten to meet some of these young drummers that treated me like I treated Ringo when I met him. I mean, yeah. we all love Ringo, but uh, you know, most of our most of our Rick Springfield audience was uh, was girls in the early 80s. Yeah. But then later on people caught up with it and I was surprised to find out how many guys were like fans that yeah. saw us live and we were much more powerful live than we were on record, so some great YouTube videos, man. If you guys playing, a lot, awesome. yeah, the it's live been, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were a great band. Yeah, it was. It's it's cool. I remember some of the heavy bands that were out. You know, used to come to see us play, and and they'd be so skeptical. Oh my God, you could just feel it. Like really, you know, like Def Leppard and Van Halen, and because we'd be getting into the arena a day before they were going to be there, so they didn't have anything to do. Ah, let's go see this, you know. <laughs> soap opera star right 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 he wasn't he was a musician way before but he, he was took on, that because he needed money he was on what was it uh general Gen- yeah but he only took that because we were broke and we we had just made the record and we didn't know what was going to happen and he called me up one day and he goes uh, man they're offering me two grand a week should i do it jack and i said that's a lot of money man and we didn't know in 19 19- and that kind of did two things it it Maybe it increased the audience of women, but it ruined his credibility. Really? Everybody thought he was a soap star turned singer. Guy had been recording albums since 1971. 
Yeah, as opposed to the opposite. I met him in 76 and toured with him for a year. And yeah. nothing happened, but yeah. we stayed in touch. But So so Rolling Stone would never do an interview with him. He was and, plagued And with people would come and see us live. These bands, like I said, would come and see us. And I could see, I would watch them while we were, I could see them just change their attitude. Yeah, yeah. A lot of energy, man. Just a lot. It's yeah. it's it's cool. I mean, there and it's. Do you feel like having this technology now that people are you're finding videos that maybe you haven't seen in years? Right. I get sent stuff all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I probably have all that stuff on VHS tape. I don't think there's anything that I did. Uh, uh, there's no rehearsal that I didn't record. There's no show I didn't record. I have thousands and thousands of those. Some of those date back to 1970. So we're looking at a, a wall one. of cassettes over here. There's Ike and Tina Turner rehearsals in there. There's every Rick Springfield rehearsal. I was a big... It was... Are we recording? Yeah, man. Okay, good. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's not waste this but, but I was a big believer in... Because I didn't have any formal training, uh, I just started playing along with records in 1960 when I was six years old, and I didn't have any formal training. And the way I taught myself was to listen to myself. Yes. Uh, and everything that I did, I record. I had a little tape recorder behind me, and I listened. Every night I would listen to what I did that day, and I took it very seriously. And, and I'd say, oh, don't do that again, or, oh, wow, that's a great fill. Um Remember that, and one. then my first thought would be, "How did you do that?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, and and so that's the way I molded my playing. I yeah, and uh, and I never, even in the beginning when I was six, the first thing that I was that my parents bought me at six years old after seeing my cousin play, and I wanted to be a drummer, you know, in his basement. Um, the first thing they bought me was a practice pad and a metronome. I still have that wooden metronome. Yeah. And so, and, and I got lessons at Peralta Music Studio in Detroit, and and um, and I learned stupid things like bossa novas and rumbas and from this old guy, and mm -hmm. and uh, then I got really bored really fast. But but the one thing that that, that I got out of that was he kept stressing it how important time was. Yeah. And so I've never, ever uh, played without that being the most important thing. Sure. And because I didn't have any formal training to speak of, in the beginning, <laughs> I couldn't really play any fills. Wow. I was always playing with people that were older than me, I, I thought that was, I initially, when I started playing with bands and when I was 12, the first thing I felt was the most important thing was that I play with people that are better than me yeah, so that I can get better. Right. I never wanted to be the best guy in the band. I wanted to be with the best guys I could find. Right. And if they didn't accept me, it, 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 it meant that I wasn't there yet and I had to keep trying and I, I always tried to achieve that. And right. that net, that concept never changed with me. Hmm. That was a concept that would run through my life and still does to this day. Yeah, of uh, throwing myself in the deep end 
and hoping I can swim. Right. And then making a point to swim. Yeah. Because it's, it's swim or die. And how, <laughs> how, how's that worked? It worked. It worked. It, it worked for me. Yeah. But the, 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 the way that I uh, improved quickly was to listen to myself. Yeah. I was my worst critic. And I was really hard on myself. Yeah. And I never really believed when I was young that I belonged in the places that I was in. Mm-hmm. I started playing with famous people when I was 16. Right. My first famous artist was Mitch Ryder when I was 16 years old. What was that like? It was... Did you know who it he was, was? It was... Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I went to concerts. I used to sneak into concerts in Detroit, the Grandy Ballroom and the Fairgrounds and the Easttown Theater when I was 14. I'd hitchhike down there after my dad went to sleep. <laughs> and... Uh, and I would uh, and watch these bands from backstage, right? And I and nobody questioned why I was there. Uh, I don't think you can get away with that today as much, but maybe not. Uh, sometimes I would grab a piece of equipment when nobody was looking and take right, it through the right. doorway, yeah. or just walk in and like go, "Hey guys, how you doing?" Like I own the place or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think everybody thought I was like somebody's kid, you know? Right. Because it looked. I always looked really, really, I looked like I was about 10. And nobody questioned me. And I stood backstage and watched some of the greatest bands in the world. And I'd say there's about a half a dozen bands that I saw during that period that I ended up playing drums for later on. Was Mitch one of those? And Mitch was one of them. And the way that I met Mitch Ryder was I, I snuck in backstage to a Bob Seger concert. And I was such a little hustler, and I don't remember to this day how I got his home phone number, but I did. <laughs> Probably from one of the crew guys. I don't know. I don't know how. I can't remember that part of it. But I remember calling Bob Seeger on the phone. I said, hey, Bob, it's Jack White. <laughs> he said, yeah, man, what can I do for you? Said, well, you know, I saw you play last night, and I just want you to know that I, I think that I should be your drummer. <laughs> I was 16 years old and he laughed yeah. and he said is that right and I said yep yep I think that uh, you and I'd be a good match <laughs> something stupid like that yeah. and he goes do you know how to play a shuffle I didn't know what a shuffle was <laughs> I said absolutely <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, I know. I wish you well or something like that. And he hung up the phone. And a couple of days later, I called him back. And he said, look, kid, I don't know how you got my number, but if you ever call me again, I'm going to hunt you down and beat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I was devastated. I, wa- I was absolutely devastated for about four hours. Yeah. And then I went, I'll call Mitch Ryder. And I'd seen Mitch, Mitch Ryder in Detroit play, you know, mm-hmm. Johnny Badanjic, one of my favorite drummers in the world that recorded Devil with the Blue Dress on when he was oh. 16. Wow. Uh, you know, I'd seen Mitch Ryder, you know, Little Richard called Mitch Ryder the greatest white rock and roll singer of all time. Now, and there's another blank spot. Within an hour, I had Mitch Ryder's home phone number and I have no idea how I got it. <laughs> I can only imagine 
what this 16-year-old kid was like <laughs> to do that. How did I do that? Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> but I called him up, and I gave him the same spiel that I gave Bob. Yeah. And he laughed like Bob did. Yeah. Only he said, well, I guess we should meet then. Oh, <laughs> I went, what? We should do what? <laughs> <laughs> I just about fell he, off the chair. He called your bluff, man. Yeah. Well, the, this is the really interesting thing. He said, come on over. I want to meet you. He lived in my apartment building, and I didn't even know it. Oh, wow. I was at his door in five minutes. Yeah. And he talked to me for a long time. Yeah. And he was kind to me. Yeah. He was like a big brother to me, you know? And he said, well, I want to give you an audition. And he auditioned me along with a few other guys. Yeah. And this was a period of time for Mitch where he was sort of, he had sort of quit singing for a while, didn't know if he really wanted to do it, uh, but he thought he'd put a band together and play some clubs around Detroit just, just to keep himself busy. Lucky for me. And he gave me the job. Nice. And I was not good enough. Huh. And that's not what it was about for him at yeah. that time. At that time, he wanted to give me a break. Hmm. And, but it wasn't luck, you see. It was me just not taking no for an answer. Right. It was me willing to risk being embarrassed, to risk getting rejected, yeah. and not caring. Right. And that's the way I was. And I think that's the way I still am, except for when it comes to girls. <laughs> <laughs> that's a completely different They scare me case. more than any, any. Oh, my gosh. They scare me way more than any band. But uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, I played with him for about six months. And, uh, and then he, he quit and went to Denver and took a year and a half off. He's back out there singing now, and he's better than ever. And he, he mentioned me in his book that he wrote recently. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, I played in some local Detroit bands. Well, can I ask you real quick, that experience with Mitch, did yeah. that kind of solidify that attitude that, you know what, if I, don't take, if, I, if I don't take no for an answer, see what I've accomplished, and... Maybe this is the way I'm going to achieve success for the rest of my life. It was exactly what I thought. Yeah. And one of the other th feelings that I had was, if I can do this without being good enough, imagine what I can do yeah. if I get better at this. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I realized the fusion of determination and perseverance mm -hmm. were the keys to everything. Mm. And I read this one time when I was 15 years old. It was in a speech by Herbert Hoover. And I wrote it down. Uh, determination and perseverance alone are omnipotent to making success. It's not talent. It's not education. It's not money. Mm. You see, and I believe this, that with determination and perseverance, the talent will come. Right. Eventually. Yeah. The education will come eventually. But you must stay determined. But the key 
it does, determination doesn't work without perseverance because along the way you get rejected. Yeah. And I believe that it's what we do with that rejection that makes the difference in our character. Right. Because I can't tell you how many people I've seen that get rejected that give up. Or they give up for too long and they never get back to it. Right. Or it, it, it just makes them feel so less than that when they do get back to it, they don't have enough confidence. So I believe that perseverance is almost a little more important than the determination part. You've got a great plaque out on your front porch. Do you remember what it says? It's along that line. Handling success and handling failure in the same. It's not those words, but it's... It's, it's um, and treat those imposters both the same. That's the ending line right there. I love that. My father gave me that. That was a poem by Rudyard Kipling. Yeah. And uh, you have to treat success and disaster as the same thing. Treat those imposters both the same. In other words, they're both illusions. Yes, imposters. Success is an illusion. Hmm. And, And failure is an illusion. Yeah. Except for those who embrace them. Yeah. And... It's dangerous to embrace either one. Right, right. It's just as in, it's just as dangerous to embrace success. Right. Too closely. Yeah. It is as it is failure. Sure. I yeah. mean, and I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're playing drums. I don't care if you're a football player. I don't care if you're a teacher. I don't care what you do for a living. I really, truly believe in my heart that that is the key to the whole thing. Mm. of this life yeah and staying happy and passionate about what we're going to do or what we're doing right and uh i i had the fortune of working on tv shows during my career with the great actor george burns (laughs) comedian george burns and the actor and The last time I saw George Burns, he was 98 years old. Good Lord. And I was with my wife backstage at the Golden Globe Awards in L.A. And I had worked with him the first time back in the 70s and then again in the 80s. This was in the 90s. I walked up to George. He was in his tux. He had a smoking cigar. He had two beautiful women on each side of him. (laughs) And he was about to go on stage. And as I was walking up to him, I I didn't even know what I was going to say. And I walked up and I said, Mr. Burns, my name is Jack White, and I've worked with you a couple of times. Oh, hello there, son. How are you? And he, he was like about five feet tall. And um, and out of my mouth came the stupidest, what I thought was the stupidest question <laughs> in the world. I said, can I ask you something? And he said, what is it, son, anything? And I said, well, do you have the answer to a happy life? to living a long, happy life because you're obviously having one. Yeah. And as soon as I said it, I thought, what a stupid question. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He smiled at me and he said, that's a good question, son. I do have the answer to that. You got to wake up every morning and be passionate about what you're going to do that day. Right. Because we're supposed to wake up with, oh boy, not uh oh. And if you don't find yourself waking up that way, find something else to do. Because you're doing the wrong thing. And with that, they called his name, and I never saw the man again. But he lived to be 100 years old. Amazing. 
I thought that was one of the most profound things I ever heard in my life. I stood there numb for about five minutes. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I had just heard. It's probably why he lived to be a to to be a hundred. Probably. Of, yeah. And yet it's so simple. Yeah. I think that I have had a tendency in my life to overcomplicate things <laughs> and tell myself scary stories along the way and let other people dictate uh my own uh, journey when in fact nobody's in control of my journey but me in it I think it's important for me to remember that and as I I'm about to turn 62 years old in a uh, little less than two weeks and as I get to this age March 12th I look back and I go Ah, uh, it was so much simpler than I made it out to be at times. And I wish I could write that kid a letter and yeah. tell him what he was going to run into. But I, knowing me, because now I have a 20-year-old son, right? I wouldn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is your son like you? And if I did, I'd crumble it up and throw it away and go, you don't know what you're talking about. Is your son a lot like you? When he's exactly that? like me. He's a Pisces like me. He's an dr incredible drummer. Um incredible songwriter, guitar player, piano player. And he doesn't really, he worshiped me hmm. until he was 17 years old. <laughs> and now he, he, I'm lucky if I can get him on the phone every two weeks. But when he was three years old, I used to sit, I used to, I was playing with Rick Springfield and I used to, at three years old, I put earmuffs on him. On him right. And I'd take him up in the arenas 25,000 screaming people, and I'd set him on my drum riser, and I'd put these big earmuffs on him, and I'd hand him a bunch of sticks, and I'd say, son, whenever I need a drumstick, you just give me a drumstick. I gave him a job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd feel important. Yeah. And he was gone. I could see it in his eyes. Yeah. He, he was gone at that moment. He, he was just like I was. Yeah. I was a little older. I was six, but the same thing happened to me. And, and uh, yeah, and I can't tell him anything, and nobody could have told me anything. Yeah. And I wish my father was still alive, because I have a lot of questions for him. I wish I'd paid more attention. Well, you're in good company, man. I mean, I think there's so many people that feel this way, and you reach a point in your life where you can spend a little time to reflect back and try and pass that on the best you can. And your son's going to have that epiphany as well. We all do. Between the ages of, what, 17 and 25, 30, we just think we know it all. I know. Everybody tells me they're going to come back. Yeah. And, uh, and I just keep saying, well, gee, I hope I'm still alive when they do. <laughs> but, you know, I want to thank you, Matt, for having me do this today because this is, this, yeah. is, uh, this is good for me. And this is a yeah. way for me to at least pass something on to somebody. If one person... Here's one thing that I say, and, and it makes a difference even I, for a moment in their yeah. life. I, I think that's really well. You got a one person. You got one person right here, man. I'm I'm picking up <laughs> oh, on what you're saying, man. I, I hear. I appreciate it. that. Thank it. you. Thank you yeah. for. I'm really. I mean that. Yeah. Cool. It's an honor to uh, have anybody ask me anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump back to uh, after Mitch Ryder. After Mitch Ryder was a very interesting part of my life. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, there, 
like I said, I started working in a gas station after that. My dad and I lived on Eight Mile. I had, my mother and father had divorced. I was living on Eight Mile Road. My father had one hand because he lost one in World War II. So we were very poor. Nobody wanted to hire my dad. I was, I, by this time I had been to like seven different high schools, moving around a lot. And now I lived with my father in an apartment. I worked in a gas station across the street. It was dangerous to say the least. Um, some bad things were happening to me on the streets. Hmm. Um, I was putting bands together, but it was hard to get jobs. I, I would get jobs in club bands. And back in those days, when you got a job in a club band, you had to do six or seven sets. You'd have to do five nights of five sets a night, and then on the weekends, you had to do the after-hour sets as well. Mm. And my hands would bleed. Mm. I didn't have calluses yet, and I didn't have good technique. And my hands would bleed. And I... I call those my in-the-trenches years. And um, I finally went to my dad in the middle of the 11th grade. Now, <clears throat> I saw a lot of things happening on TV, and, and by reading those slider notes that we talked about, sure. I saw that a lot of my favorite records were being made out in Los Angeles. I'd never been to Los Angeles, and haven't really been that many places yet, but... I went to my dad one night, and I said, Dad, listen, this is a dangerous place for me, and I want to quit high school, and I want to go to California and be a drummer. And again, you got to remember, I have no formal training. I have no reason to believe that I can go there and accomplish anything, except for that Mitch Ryder had believed in me, and I couldn't stop thinking about that. If this guy who had a number one hit selling record, believed in me. There must be something there, and I need to go find out what it is. Yeah. And I know I can do this. Yeah. I was a very determined young kid. Yeah. You know. But my father didn't say a word. Not a word. And I went to bed. And I just thought to myself, well, wow, that was weird. He didn't say anything. But he got me up at six in the morning. I could smell breakfast was being made. And he said, come to the kitchen, I wanna to talk to you. And I went to the kitchen and my father said, I've been up all night. And he said, I think this is the best thing for you to do. Wow. And I want you to go pack your things. Let's have some breakfast and I'm gonna drive you down to Toledo and give you a head start. And I was in shock. Mm. And I had to ask myself, was I serious when I said that? <laughs> and and I did. I packed my backpack, and I, we had breakfast, and my father drove me 50 miles south, put me on the 80 West Freeway ramp, got out of the car with me, and for the first time in my life, I saw a tear in his eye. And uh, he reached in his pocket and gave me the last $100 that he had to his name. Wow. And he said, good luck, son. I know you're going to make it. Now, this is the days before cell phones. So I didn't know when I'd talk to him again or when I'd see him again. And with that, he drove off. And I sat there and I watched his car disappear on the horizon. I stood there for 20 minutes in shock. And I stuck my thumb out. And eight days later, I arrived 
in Hollywood. It was 1971, and I had $60 left. Wow. And all I can tell you is this. I never slept in the streets, and I never had to do another job except play drums. Yeah. For the next 45 years. Jeez. I did do other jobs later in life because I wanted to. Yeah. There were things I wanted to explore, like acting and announcing on radio and photography. But it wasn't, I didn't need to. Right. Those were just things that I wanted to branch out in. But I made a living. Yeah. And basically, I walked up and down the streets of Hollywood uh, every day, asking every human being I saw if they (laughs) knew anybody that needed a drummer. Now, you got to remember, I don't have any drums. Right. I don't... The only thing I have is this credit, this Mitch Ryder credit, you know, which at 17 years old, uh, I threw that around a lot. (laughs) Sure, why not? That's all I got, you know, uh, and I I met a couple girls that let me stay on their, sleep on their floor, Uh, that took care of my housing for a minute. And then I ran into some guy that said there's a job at a frat house tonight. It pays $15 and all the beer you can drink, and they've got drums there. I wished I'd had enough money to call my dad and say I got my first job. This is about three weeks after getting there. And at that party, the bass player, you know, I'm asking everybody. I still keep asking everybody I see who needs, you know. The bass player said Sam the Sham is looking for a drummer. Now, he, he had a hit song called Wooly Bully. Yeah. And Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. And it was Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Mm-hmm. And I remembered them from when I was a kid. And I got all excited. I said, can I, can you, can you help me get an audition? To make a long story short, I auditioned for Sam. I got the job. And Sam let me live with him. Wow. His name was Domingo Samudio. And he was a gentle, kind man. And he was 20 years older than me. And he talked like this, and he's from Texas. <laughs> he was a Mexican man from Texas. And he was uh, <clears throat> very kind. I worked with him for about five months. And then he dropped the bomb on us that he was going to go back to Texas. And I panicked because now I needed a place to live and a job. And we were at the Whiskey A Go-Go when it happened, and I was in the dressing room, and I immediately went into that mode. Do you know anybody looking for a drummer? Do you know anybody looking for a drummer? And this is a really important part of my career because this was, this was going to be, the next month was going to change everything. Mm-hmm. So this is the most critical turn of my life. I see this beautiful black woman across the dressing room. And I don't know who she is, but I know a lot about history of music by this time. Yeah. I know names. I know records. Man, I knew every record from the 60s and who did them. I knew everything, but I didn't recognize people sometimes. And I walked up to her and I said, hey, you know, you just saw me play with Sam and I'm just, I'm looking for a job. I said, do you know anybody looking for a drummer? And she goes, oh, yeah, honey, I do, as a matter of fact. And you were great, by the way. Now, you got to remember, at this time, I still don't know how to do any fills, (laughs) but I've got great time. Yeah. And I've got one of the most consistent backbeats, which is what everybody loved about me. Yeah. It's because that's all I knew how to do. So I did it with all my heart. Right. And it worked. Right. Um, and I said, who? And she said, Ike and Tina Turner. <laughs> 
and I thought I was going to faint. Yeah. That was one of the bands that I saw when I was 15 in Detroit. Sure. And that might have been the greatest R&B band of all time at that point, along with Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, yeah. Those are the two greatest R&B bands in history up to that point. Who was this? And one? Otis Redding. Yeah. Otis Redding had a great horn band. And, 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 and let's not forget Wilson Pickett. Some of, the, some of the guys that had great bands. But Ike and Tina had a different kind of energy that was more ferocious, more powerful than anything I'd ever seen mm-hmm. in person. And she said, just tell them Claudia Lanier sent you. And I went, oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I'm talking to Claudia Lanier. Now, Claudia Lanier, for those of you who don't know, was <laughs> was one of the original Iquettes who sang on Proud Mary. Mm. And at the time when I walked up to her, she was married to Leon Russell. Wow. And I knew all that. And I couldn't believe it. And uh, <clears throat> I called down there the first thing the next morning, and I, I said, I understand you're looking for drummers. And they said, well, auditions are closed. This is the last day. We've been auditioning drummers all week. And I said, well, Claudia Lanier sent me. And she said, hold on the phone a second. And she comes back a couple minutes later, and she says, uh, all right, get down here right now, but you'll be the last one we hear. Yeah. So now by this time, I've bought a set of drums, you know, from playing with Sam for 175 bucks at the drum shop and, and now I'm starting to you know and I've you know bought, I've got some clothes now and I've got you know right I've got you know I've, I've made some money so I've, you know I'm, I'm doing I'm actually I think I'm doing great <laughs> I mean you know I'm, I'm like eating every day yeah, I'm, hey, you know good, uh, good I don't have a car yet but I'm eating you know I got everything else and Sam actually gave me a ride down there and uh, uh, I walked in the room and I was the only white guy in the building and there were about 20, no, not 20. I think there were about 10 black guys waiting to audition in the hall. Mm-hmm. And I walked up and I introduced myself to the lady behind the desk. And she said, have a seat. It's going to be a while. And uh, I sat down. I looked up and I looked at these guys and they were just staring me down like, you know. <laughs> you got to remember at this time, at 17 years old, I look like I'm about 10. Yeah. And I'm white. Mm-hmm. I'm really white. And your name is white. But I'm from Detroit. <laughs> and so one of the things that I learned in Detroit was never let anybody see you're afraid. Mm. You can be scared to death, but don't let them see that. <laughs> so, you know, here I am trying to act tough and everything. So I just ignore them. And, uh, but I almost left three times because I swear, got drummers when I could hear the band playing. I mean, this big 16-piece horn band with five horns, five of the tightest horns I've ever heard, uh, with the exception of Tower of Power, which came a little later. Right. But uh, I could hear them rehearsing. I could hear them. And some of these drummers were amazing. And I almost left. I just wondered, what's what's the point? And then I thought, no, go on in there. At least you can say you played one song with Ike and Tina, and that'll be cool. Yeah. they went through all those drummers, and then it was my turn. And I walked in. I didn't need drums. They had drums there. They told me that. And I walked in, and Soko Richardson, the original drummer, was leaving to go to play with John Mayo, and he was really nice. Big, heavyset black guy with bald head. And this black band, this, this horn band, with you know, it was like uh, Tina and Ike were not in the room. 
neither were the background singers. So there was about 11 guys there, and um, or 10, whatever it was. And and uh, I could see them rolling their eyes when I came in. like, And they were tired. I could tell they were tired. Yeah, you were the last guy. They were exhausted. Yeah. And, and now this little white kid's going to come in here? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I could see it in their faces. And I went, okay, all right, just... And Soko was really nice. He'd move anything you want, make yourself comfortable. So we sit down and we play a song. And there's a little bit of a silence at the end. I wish I could remember what song it was, but to be honest with you, I was so scared. I, I can't remember anything. Claude went, the, the band leader, the trumpet player, Claude Williams, he said, you stay right there. He went and he got Ike Turner. And Ike Turner walked in the room wearing a black leather trench coat with a fur collar and sunglasses with diamonds around the side. Yeah. And next to him was a guy named Blue wearing a purple matching suit with a hat and patent leather shoes. An old old guy. And Ike didn't talk to anybody. He talked to Blue and then Blue would tell you what he said. <laughs> nice. And I'm sitting here at the drums going... I'm looking around, I'm looking left, I'm looking right, I'm looking at Ike, I'm going, what's going on here? This is bizarre. Yeah. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I'm scared shitless. I'm scared to death. And like I said before, nobody's going to know that. I'm not going to let anybody know that. But I am really intimidated, beyond a doubt. So, as we're playing, Ike call, Blue calls out some song that Ike whispers to him. And as we're playing the song... Uh, so did you know these songs? I mean, you know a lot of times you're given material to audition. I knew them from hearing them on the record. I know that they were cover songs. Tina did a lot of cover songs. She did Wilson Pickett. I think one of them was Land of a Thousand Dances by Wilson Pickett. Okay. Which is a really fast tune. And we didn't do, I know we didn't do Prob Mary that day. I know we might have played Oopoopadoo because that's an easier one. And then I think it was Land of a Thousand Dances, if I'm not mistaken, which is a lot like uh, uh, some of the records I grew up listening to on the radio in Detroit. Yeah, and I played with Mitch Ryder with "Devil with the Blue Dress" was a lot like that. Mm -hmm. I, again, I can't play any fills, but I'll make that thing feel really good. Now, one of the things that was to my benefit was that these horn players were so good and so tight. You'd have to be an idiot not to be able to play. Sure, you'd have to be, uh, you'd have to be a cripple not to be able to play with these guys. I'm not kidding. They were so in your face with that sound yeah. that it, it, I just... Fall into it. Oh, it was like following a metronome. Just, hey, just stay right here, man. Right. Don't worry about the fills. Just yeah. make this thing feel good. Yeah. And I I used what I knew was my best attribute, and I, I just stayed right there in the pocket. and I And it worked because, except for one thing... <laughs> At the end of the song, Ike has been staring at me, okay, this whole time from 10 feet in front of the drums. And I'm, I start to ignore him 
and just look at the other guys because he's scaring me. <laughs> and so I'm so nervous that at the end of the song, I actually stand up behind the drums and I say, all right, everybody, that sounded pretty good. Let's do another one. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, oh, no, Jack, did you just say that out loud? Oh, my God. And I turn around and I start to pack up because I don't even want to hear what's coming next. And I know it's over. Yeah. I mean, really? You know, I didn't know a lot about Ike Turner at that time. Not not as much as I was about to find out and not about as much as we've all found out since. Right, sure. But anybody would have been, you know, pissed off some kid. But the thing that I learned as I as I get older, the thing the things you can get away with at seventeen. Right. When you're thirty five, they'll kill you for it. When you're seventeen, they think you're cute. Yeah. <laughs> so his reaction was He left the room with Claude. Oh no, no, wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me back up. He said that's the first time I heard his voice. Yeah. That was the first time I heard his voice. And I heard Ike Turner go, all right, play another one. And I went, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I'm packing up, dude. I'm yeah. back here packing up. Yeah. I turn around and I just, I'm in shock. Play another one? After what I just did? And we played another one. And then he and Claude and Blue left the room. And Claude called me out in the hallway. And I walked out in the hallway, and I think I was shaking. You know, I'm trying to, not to shake. I'm, like, I'm, 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 I'm in shock. Yeah. And Claude says to me, Ike says, you got the job, but you got to change your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and so the next day I showed up for my first rehearsal with Tina Turner, who ran the rehearsals. Ike was not there. Tina, yeah. Tina ran everything. Yeah. And that's when my difficulty began because she went out and got Ike and brought Ike into the room, pointed at me, and said, he's not good enough. He can't play the fills that we need. And Ike just looked at her. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what he said, but it was basically... He wasn't really nice to her, let's put it that way. Right, he said, right. you teach him what to do. That's my drummer. I don't care if you have to stay after rehearsals to do it. Mm -hmm. And with that, he walked out of the room. Hmm. And she was just, she was pissed. She was angry. Mm -hmm. All right. And I, I'm thinking, oh, God, this is not the way I wanted to join any band. I, this is terrible. I mean, I adored, I worshipped this woman. And for her to feel this way about me was just crushing. Yeah. And for the next three weeks, she beat me up verbally <laughs> and every which way you can think of. Mm. And she would stop 30 seconds into a song and start yelling at me. She did it for three weeks. For three weeks, I didn't sleep. I was living in an apartment with somebody. I, didn't, I couldn't set up my drums and practice, but... I had pillows on a table, and I went home every night and sat there trying to do those fast rolls that you do in Proud Mary. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you see, that was choreo. It was part of the choreography with the dancers. Sure, when sure. When they did that swimming thing, you had to roll around the toms. Yeah. Well, I couldn't roll around the toms like that. Yeah, yeah. I had to learn, and I had to learn now. 
Fast. And every single day that I went to that studio, and I had to get a ride from my buddy, you know, every day and every day, you know, and then I'd have to go home and sit up all night and just do it over and over and over and over. And I thought I was going to drop. And after three weeks, she walked up to me and she said, you know, when you came in this band, you weren't good enough. And I kind of looked down and said, yeah, I know. And uh, she said, well, I've never seen anybody work so hard. You're doing a great job. And she walked away. And I floated home and slept for the first time in three weeks. <laughs> and uh, I said, wow, I'm in Ike and Tina Turner's band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still credit her to this day as the person who really taught me how to play. And not, she didn't give me my passion. She gave me, she opened me up. Yeah. And taught me how to get around the drums. She didn't. She didn't sit there and teach me how to do it. She demanded that I do it, and and it was up to me to learn. But if if it hadn't have been for that experience, yeah, I don't think my career would have gone quite the way it did. Because after that, I joined one famous. I was with them for a year and a half, and I played on the last record they ever made as a duo. Oh wow! Called Baby Get It On. Okay. On United Artists, it would be my first record that I ever cut. And it would be the last one they ever cut as a duo. Yeah. And that's history. Yeah. I had no idea I was making history at the time. Yeah. But it's history. And here's the 45 to prove There's it. A, that's great. But I went from one famous band to another after that. All I had to do was say I played with I and Tina. And I didn't, sometimes I didn't even have to audition. There's a really great ending to to the story about my dad dropping me off at the freeway. Yeah. Six years later, my dad would watch me play in front of 20,000 screaming kids in Detroit. And I sent a limousine to get him, and he'd never been in one. When you were with, uh, who were you with? Rick Springfield. Oh, great. Yeah. So, was it six? It might have been a little longer than that. Yeah, but still. I, I don't, I, I don't <laughs> know. Really, but but the, the, that's, I, I really wanted to mention that because, you know, had my dad not had the courage to do that, and it did take courage, I now have a son. Right. There's absolutely no way I would drop my son off on a freeway. But my dad was actually trying to save my life. Right. And he was one of the guys that went down there and enlisted in the Army and became a pilot when the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So I think that gave him character. And I think that he was giving me the same character by doing that. I finally left Icantina because I couldn't stand watching the abuse. I couldn't stand being verbally abused. And I couldn't, and now, by now, I've learned a little bit about what's going on and who's getting paid what and how much the job is worth. And I was being way underpaid. And and uh, after a year and a half, I quit. Yeah. Um, uh, my next job after that was uh, Rare Earth. Wow. Audition for Rare Earth. Uh, the drummer was a lead singer. I mean, he left the band. They got Jerry LaCroix from White Trash and Frosty on drums from Lee Michaels' band. Frosty left the band. They needed a drummer. They were going out on the road right away. I auditioned for them one day. 
Uh, my friend Reggie McBride was playing bass from Detroit, who I knew from Detroit, who mm -hmm. played with Stevie when he was Stevie Wonder when he was seventeen. Jeez. He got me the audition, and uh, I uh, I lasted a week. <laughs> uh, this is a great story because uh, again, uh, this is I mean I've every time I think about anything in my life, I, I was always thrown in the deep end. And let's see if this kid can swim, you know. And I actually learned most of the songs on the airplane on the way to the first gig, opening up for the Ohio Players somewhere in Louisiana. And I'm sitting there, and I, I saw Edgar Winter, Edgar Winter's White Trash when I was a kid in yeah. Detroit. Jerry LaCroix was one of the horn players and singers. And I'm now going to play with Jerry LaCroix. Are you kidding me? And one of the greatest bass players, Reggie McBride. And, and the original Rare Earth. The rest of it was original. I was just blown away and rare earth of course was from detroit yeah so <clears throat> i was learning the songs well when they auditioned me the first day we got to the song get ready which was an old temptation song that yeah. they had a big hit on yeah. and when it came to the end of the song they just stopped playing and they said and here's where you do a drum solo <laughs> okay let's wrap let's get all right be at the airport tomorrow at seven o'clock and everybody went home and i thought all night drum solo <laughs> whoa this is even a little trickier than doing the fills around the top right, <laughs> right, right right what am i gonna do yeah and i listened to the original record and i, I said well i can't do that because i don't really even know how to do that so i gotta do something and i thought what am i gonna do and the only thing i could do is copy this drum solo that i saw Donnie Brewer do with Grand Funk Railroad. Mm, wow. Which made no sense in Get Ready. Okay? Didn't yeah. even fit. Yeah. It was the only thing I could think of that was simple enough for me to do. So the first night in front of 10,000 people, I made a fool out of myself when it came to the drum solo. And I was pretty embarrassed, and nobody talked to me. We, had th we did three gigs. Yeah. By the time we got to uh, the third gig... I was just completely devastated. I knew I was not good enough to, you know, I again, you know. And sure enough, when we got home, I was fired. Mm. And so I lasted a week. Yeah. And uh, they had no problem telling me, you can't do a drum solo. Sorry. Yeah. You know, your feel's great, but we need a drum solo, and you can't do one. Yeah. And so the next six months while I played in a club band. Yeah. I got a club club gig right away to pay my rent and eat. For the next six months, I rented a room at the union for a dollar. You could rent a room for a dollar if you wow. were a, a union member. Yeah. And I took my drums. By this time, I had bought a car by okay. now. Okay. You know, during the period of time, I had an old... Uh, Old 68 Cadillac. I thought that was pretty cool. Very appropriate Detroit mobile, you know. Sure, sure. And uh, <clears throat> I would take my drums down to the Union and set my drums up and practice drum solos and and find records with them and, and just practice over and over. And I, I vowed that would never happen to me again. Yeah. And it wasn't until eight years later that anybody ever asked me to do one. <laughs> but I was ready. <laughs> Every dream that I ever had as a kid from the time I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and dreamed about becoming famous and having an experience of that would come true with Rick because you got to remember that the other 
some by now, you know, Redbone and Steppenwolf and Roger Miller and Glenn Campbell. I played with all these people on, and 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 Rare Earth and Ike and Tina Turner, Mitch Ryder and Sam the Shaman. These people were all famous before I came along. Right. I never got a sense of what it was like to to be part of something that became successful. I didn't get to see what it took to get there. Yeah. I just jumped in, you know. So with Rick, it was different. With I met Rick in 1976. Uh, he had an album out. One of the ways that I used to get gigs was I used to... Uh, we didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have any of that. It was old school. It was the 70s. In 1976, I used to go around to the rehearsal halls in L.A., and the record companies and sit in the lobbies and ask the managers of rehearsal halls, is anybody in here auditioning drummers? Oh, wow. Or I'd sit in the, in the lobby of Motown Records and say, and people would come in and I'd go, my name's Jack White. I played with Ike and Tina Turner. You know, uh, do you know anybody looking for a drummer? I actually got a great session doing that one day and got to play with James Jamerson. The most famous bass player in yeah, the world. Yeah, sure, sure. By doing that. But the day that I met Rick was the day I walked into Mars Rehearsal Hall on Melrose Avenue and asked that question. You know anybody auditioning drummers? Yeah, there's an Australian guy down the hall. His name is Rick Springfield. And he's got an album out called Wait for Night. And here it is. And he handed me the record. And I turned it over. And my favorite record at that time was Yellow Brick Road with Elton John. Sure. D. Murray and Nigel Olson were yeah. the rhythm section. Yeah. And David Johnstone was playing guitar. Yeah. I I just I thought that was the most amazing band with Elton on piano. It was like forget about it. Yeah. And and uh, lo and behold, Nigel Olson and D. Murray had played on this record with Rick Springfield. Really. And I took one look at that. I didn't know who Rick Springfield was. I took one look at that and I said, I want an audition. And he goes, well, he's down the hall. You can go in and introduce yourself. And I walked in there and I introduced myself to him. And he was real shy. <laughs> and he was very nice. His girlfriend was sitting next to him. And it was, he, was, he was in the middle of auditioning somebody. I kind of waited till they were finished with the song. And I walked up and introduced himself. I want to come down and play with you. And he, uh, he, uh, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back tomorrow uh, at 1 o'clock. And so I went home and listened to the record. And I learned the songs that he told me to. And I came back the next day. And I got the gig. Nice. And I tried to play as much like Nigel as I could, but I also couldn't do that because I'm still me, right? Right. I still right. have my way of doing it, but I played Nigel's fills. I was I paid tribute to the recordings, which I think people should do. We toured the country for a year in a twelve passenger van and played clubs, and nobody came to see us. <laughs> and the album actually started to do well. I I went on American Bandstand for the first time and. We did some press, and we were starting to get somewhere, actually, and then the label folded. Hmm. And Rick and I had become very, very good friends by yeah. this point, yeah. and we stayed friends. And he didn't have a license, so I used to drive him around, and he didn't have a car. He didn't know how to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> and he lived in Hollywood, and, and I drove him around, and we went our different directions, and I played in some other bands. Sure. I started that band Player. We had a single called "Baby Come Back." Okay. I I played with uh, um, I played with Roger Miller. I played, I did. Um, I was on Epic Records with Gary Myrick and the Figures. I I I did several other things in there. 
Um, lots of things in there. I, that's when I started acting. I signed with Disney and, and became an actor for a little while. And uh, anyway, in 1980, Rick called me up. He goes, Jack, I wrote some great new songs. I said, I'll be right over. <laughs> and I drove to his house in Glendale, and I went in, and he had a little tiny tape deck, a little tiny cassette recorder. This is still pre-Pro Tools, okay? Yeah, 1980, for, for still sure. pre-everything. Yeah, right. We don't have cell phones yet. We don't have Pro Tools. We don't have, you know, we don't, nothing digital. We're just, we're still old school. He's making his demos on a four, on a reel-to-reel four-track in sure. his living room and sure. using pillows for drums and hitting them. So he placed me this demo of Working Class Dog. Well, what would become Working Class Dog. Yeah. And I listened to the whole thing, and I loved it. And yeah. I could hear what he, where he was going with it. I could hear what it should be. Yeah. I got it right away. Yeah. And the first thing I heard that I loved was Jesse's Girl. <laughs> and I said to him, that's the single right there. And he said, no, no, no. It's this one over here, a hole in my heart. And I said, no, no, I think you're wrong. And funny enough, uh, in his autobiography that he put out, he, he says that I was the first one to know. <laughs> and uh, so when I say that that's the first... I mean, we he he asked me to put a band together. Yeah, because I knew more players than he did, and and so I put the band together, and we went in the studio and started. We his his manager owned Sound City. Oh, cool. Joe Gottfried and Tom Skeeter owned Sound City. They were managing him at the time. So I went on a two hundred and fifty dollar week of salary, and and I did all the work. I put the bands together. I rehearsed everybody. I did everything. Rick and I went in the studio. Neil Duraldo from Pat Benatar's band came in and helped us produce it, along with Bill Drescher, engineering. We got free studio time because his managers owned the place. Right. And we recorded Working Class Dog. And um, over the next year, I would watch that single. And of course, RCA Records. We, oh, then we got to deal with RCA Records after we cut the record, half the record. And then, again, Rick went off to do some other work, but put me in charge of the band. And um, and uh, he's my brother to this day. I'll tell you, he's the only guy that I've ever worked with in the business that actually took care of me and was fair to me and made sure that I was compensated for what I did. I would have done it for free, to be honest with you. That's, that's an but encouraging he, story. But he yeah, took care sure. of me. That's awesome. We watched that thing climb the charts. Yeah. And I went from playing clubs in 1980 with him to theaters, to state fairs, to civic auditoriums and colleges, to sold-out arenas all over the world did 200 tv shows did 10 videos and sold five million albums or whatever it was which was a lot in those days and so when i say that that's how i felt success i can't even begin to tell you what it was like to go from listening to this song on a tape recorder yeah to being in these sold-out venues all over the world. Right. To watch it grow, to be a part of the growth. I'd be a part of the growth and feel the whole experience all the way. That's amazing. <laughs> but that was an experience that I can't even describe. And if I, you know, I knew 
when I got to the top with him, I knew that if I never did anything else in my life, this is what I dreamed of. That's awesome, man. It was so much more than joining a band that was already famous. Yeah, for sure. I felt like I earned this one. I get that. I get that. I earned it. Yeah. I fought for it. Right, right. Somebody saw me playing somewhere and suggested that I audition for this Disney movie. And Ron Miller, who was married to Walt Disney's daughter, was the president at the time, and he was running the auditions. And I went in there, and uh, it's incredible because um, for the first film, you had to be able to play drums and act. Yeah. And uh, Carlos Vega auditioned for it, one of my favorite drummers in the world. Oh, too, yeah. But he couldn't act, (laughs) and I was like a ham. And I looked like David Cassidy, and he was a little rougher looking. By the way, he and I were very close. I have to tell you that I've never seen a better drummer. And there was no audition that I ever went to. If he was in line to audition, I I might as well just pack up and go home because I'm not going to get, he's going to get it. And he did. He got every, you know, he was one of the greatest drummers in L.A. at that time. This was the only gig that I got that he didn't get. Oh, the acting gig! I got this one because of the way I looked, and I can't. I, 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 we would laugh about it. We laughed about it till he passed away. But we used to laugh about it and say, "Yeah, remember that gig I took away from?" (laughs) He'd start laughing. Anyway, I did that for nine months, and I, I, I left to go play with Redbone, one of my favorite bands in the world. Another band that I saw playing in Detroit, and I'm glad I did because that was one of the greatest bands I ever played in. Um, And I toured with them for a year, and I just. Didn't acting wasn't really resonating with me until, and it wouldn't until five years ago. I was going to say, I mean, if we fast forward to what's what? Yeah, five years ago, I started going to acting classes again. Um, You know, I found myself with some downtime out here on the ranch, and um, I was with a girl. Uh, I had a girlfriend that wanted to take acting lessons, and I said, well, I, I used to do that. I'll go with you. And and I lost the girl somewhere along the way, uh, <laughs> but I kept up the acting classes. <laughs> and then about, uh, I don't know, how long has it been now? About two years ago, I uh, I got a role on Sons of Anarchy, and I did the last two episodes of the whole seven years. And that... I was already in the Screen Actors Guild from years before, so that 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 made it possible for me to do that. And um, I grew up in Detroit. Or I've been riding a Harley for a long, long time, or some form of motorcycle. And I was very familiar with that lifestyle. Sure. And that sort of anger and sort of tough guy thing. Yeah. I grew up in it. And since then, I've been... Um, I've been doing really well. I've been having a lot of fun. I'm not, I'm not, I have no uh, fantasies about becoming some famous actor, okay? Yeah. Uh, just working once in a while. Yeah. And being able to study and learn. And na- and the show Nashville as well? I was on Nashville as yeah. well. I did a scene with uh, Ch- Chip Charles, who plays Deacon, and uh, and the girl that's I'm sorry I can't remember her name right now but it, it was it was that was a good scene and uh, I did a couple of independent films and I did um, a lot of auditions and again uh, you know it's one of those things where you don't get every job you go after it's okay 
you know. But do you, you find that since you don't have aspirations to be a famous actor, that your auditioning, the auditioning process is different than it was when you were a drummer? Like, well, this is fun. I'm going to do this. But maybe the pressure's off. I'm not intimidated by that process sure. at all. Yeah. You know what? I've stared down Ike Turner. <laughs> so, you know, nobody behind a desk who, you know, is going to scare me. I'm not scared when I go in there. Yeah. I look at it like a learning process, and I enjoy learning. And I've I've learned things about myself in acting. Now I got a job as an announcer on iHeartRadio, so I'm learning how to speak differently. Wow. And which all that is is the audio part of acting. Yeah. And I do commercials and lead-ins and announcements, and I don't know how many stations I'm on. I'm on a lot of stations right now, but yeah. and it'll get better. Yeah. And every time I do anything, I get better at it. But I love having something to do where there's a learning curve. I want to tie in the first story you told about calling Bob Seger and Mitch Ryder and having that experience and how do you carry that attitude with you now almost 62 mm. here in a couple of weeks is that same kid <laughs> that you were when you were 16 the lessons you learn just the bold move the confidence and you know staring down that stuff do you feel like you still carry that I think that that's with an you? interesting question and I really think that there's a certain portion of us that when we're young that gets hardwired yeah. And depending on what happened to us as kids, I mean, I had some terrible things happen to me, and it sort of made me afraid. And I think what happens is when we're abused children or when terrible things happen to us, we have two choices. We're, we're either going to become afraid or we're going to say, all right, watch this. Right. No, that's not going to happen to me again. Yeah. I'll show you. Right. And that's the what that's the that's the path I chose. And yeah. I tell you that I can't remember how I got their phone numbers. Okay, <laughs> but you see, that's not as important to me as right. the fact that I got it. Exactly. And the way that carries through into my life today is, I don't think there's anything that I can't do if I decide to do it. If I decide tomorrow that I want to be a painter and put my paintings in a gallery. I would bet you a million dollars that I will have a painting in a gallery within a year. I wouldn't take that bet. I believe you. I just believe that if I'm passionate about something and I want it, I'll find a way. Mm -hmm. And I don't, when I, when I hear people say, oh, I can't get a job or, you know, um, um, I, I have to go do this instead of what I love and, or, or, you know, I can't, I, I'll, I'll tell you a, a common one is people who say too often, I'm broke. I don't have any money. Okay. And they'll keep saying it. And, you know, they'll, it'll be like a, an old tape. They keep saying it out loud. Those people stay broke. You know why? Because they believe it. They're putting it out in the universe that they're broke. Mm. They keep saying it over and over again. Yeah. How can you make any money if your belief system says you're broke? 
Mm. I have to, I think you have to exceed your grasp. Yeah. I will not take no for an answer if I want to accomplish something. Even at my age, I do it differently. Sure. I'm not rude about it like I used to be. <laughs> right, not, right, right. You know, I mean, I have a little more knowledge about how to be, uh, you know, uh, politically correct and uh, polite and, you know. But but the, the theory is the same. The theory that success and failure is an illusion. I believe it is. I believe our fear, I believe my fear is the only thing that can stop me from doing anything. If I sit here and say I can't do something, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Do you believe that? I do. I do. My fear has, has uh, affected me negatively many times. It has held me back, and um, I'm reaching mm-hmm. a point in my life that I'm just What changed your viewpoint? Facing fears and um, either not having the desirable outcome but still learning mm-hmm. or actually achieving success like, wow, that wasn't so bad. What was I afraid of? Right. And uh, just staying alive this long to experience those things. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, I appreciate you, man. You're a breed in your own I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thanks for doing this. And uh, it's been my honor, my pleasure. Thank you. And um, I'm very grateful that I've been able to live a life that might just, I don't know, might help somebody else somewhere along the line. I think that's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, dude. Thanks, Matt. So there is Jack White. Um, As you probably can guess, a lot of these interviews go on a lot longer than uh, I have time to post. uh, So they are edited down for time and content. And we just we just spent a couple hours uh, talking, and it was it was really awesome. And I a big shout out to David Black for uh, connecting me with Jack. Um, I really enjoyed. Uh, that time and I hope you all did too thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance and tune in next week for Zach Albetta where he will be the host want to let you know that Working Drummer Podcast is part of the Merge Network which includes Nick Ruffini's Drummer's Resource Podcast as well as Daniel Glass's podcast please check those two out they're awesome so again thanks for listening and I hope to see you around bye bye